Okay, well, please pray with me uh, as we come to God's word. Our Father God, we thank you for your word to us. Thank you that you speak to us through it. And Father, we ask that today you would uh, be at work in us by your spirit. Please give us understanding. Please help us to rightly respond to your word today. Amen. Well, last year I was standing outside the library at UNSW near a banner that uh, we had set up for campus Bible study. And a guy was walking past, I'll call him Andy, and uh, he came up to me, introduced himself, and we started chatting about Christianity. Very quickly, however, it became clear that uh, Andy, he was a Christian himself, but he was very concerned. He was concerned for me. He didn't think, or he wasn't quite sure, that I was a genuine Christian. You see, I don't pray in tongues. Uh, I haven't been blessed with a second blessing of the Holy Spirit. I haven't been baptized by full immersion. And even worse, I was still a kid when I was baptized. And so, is this a problem? Is all of this a problem? Well, Andy was quite concerned. He did want to tell me that he thought I probably could be saved, but I definitely wasn't experiencing the fullness of God's blessing. And maybe there are things that you've been told as well, things that you need to experience, things that you need to do in order to be living as a genuine Christian. Maybe you've been told that you need to observe the Sabbath day on a Saturday or not eat the particular kinds of food that God told his Old Testament people, the Israelites, not to eat. Maybe you've been told that you need to go to church regularly or that you need to feel a deep love and conviction for God in your day-to-day life. What does it take to be a genuine Christian? And how do you know if you or someone else is a genuine Christian? Or are they, am I, a second-class kind of Christian? Well, there's many different ideas out there about what's required, but today, let's listen to God and hear what he has to say about what makes someone a genuine Christian. We're going to be looking at chapter 10 in the book of Acts today. Uh, Acts is all about the good news that Jesus is Lord of all, and it's being proclaimed through the mouths of those that he's sent, his apostles. So far we've seen the gospel spreading far and wide among the Jews, but what about the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people? People like me and, well, for many of us, uh, us as well. Can we be included as genuine Christians? Or are the Gentiles going to be sort of second-class, second-rate Christians? Well, today uh, we're going to work through the chapter, and we've got four points. The first one, a Roman with a vision. A Jew with a vision is the second one. A meeting of equals, true believers. There are four points. We're going to start off looking at a Roman with a vision. The first person that we're introduced to in this chapter is Cornelius. And the first thing to note about Cornelius is he is a Roman. And straight away that is different because so far most of the people in Acts that we've met are Jewish. A nation of people that was particularly chosen by God in the Old Testament to be blessed by him. 
but Cornelius is a Roman, and in fact, he's about as Roman as you can get. For starters, he's a ranking Roman soldier, a centurion. And not only that, he lives in Caesarea, which you've got to say is a pretty Roman-sounding name for what was a pretty Roman city. But he's not quite your typical Roman. Have a look at how he's described in verse 2. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. He and his family worshipped the one true God, the God of the Jews. Not at all typical for a Roman, especially at this time, or indeed for anyone who wasn't a Jew. And he's not interested in abusing his power or oppressing others. On the contrary, he gives generously to the poor and needy. Not a typical Roman centurion. So already, from these first two verses of introduction, Cornelius is a very interesting guy. But now we move from an interesting introduction to an even more fascinating vision. This is one of two visions that there are in this chapter, uh, and both of them get retold multiple times over this chapter and the next one. And as each is retold, uh, we learn a few more details about it. And so Cornelius's vision, we learn that he sees an angel of God who tells him to send for a guy called Simon, who's also known as Peter, who'll come and tell Cornelius everything that he's been commanded to. And by this message, Cornelius and all of his household will be saved. And so Cornelius does just that. He sends three guys to find Peter, who we've seen before in Acts, and who we know is a Jew, and who's about to get a vision of his own as well. And so this is our second point, a Jew with a vision. And we know by this point in Acts that Peter isn't just any Jew. He's also an apostle of Jesus. He's been specifically appointed by Jesus to tell people in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth, the news that Jesus is the risen Lord of all. And in this chapter, he has this vision. And afterward, we're told that he's perplexed by what he sees. It's a strange vision, and both he and we need to work out what it means. So let's think about that now. And the context of this vision is that Peter is praying, and he's hungry. And he sees a sheet full of all kinds of animals. He's told to get up, kill and eat, which makes sense if he's hungry, right? But Peter doesn't think that this sounds like a good idea. Not at all. In fact, have a look at verse 14. He says, Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. He says he's never eaten anything unclean according to the Jewish food laws. Now, in the Old Testament, God gave his chosen people, uh, the Jews, laws about many different aspects of life, including what kinds of animals they could and couldn't eat. You can have a look at how God divides animals into clean and unclean uh, in Leviticus 11 later if you're interested. But for us now, it's worth thinking more about Peter's response, because that will help us to understand the vision as a whole and the chapter as a whole. Peter doesn't want to eat anything unclean, but remember that this sheet, it has all kinds of animals. 
it has both clean and unclean animals in it. So why didn't Peter just kill and eat a clean animal? Well, that's a good question for us to spend some more time thinking about. Something that we often do at Campus Bible Study is we pause for a bit and uh, give 30 seconds for you to find someone nearby and chat with them about a particular question. Uh, so turn to a person next to you or nearby uh, and chat about this. Why wouldn't Peter just choose to kill and eat a clean animal? Go for it. Okay, hopefully that's some time to start thinking about it. We'll come back together again. It seems that Peter is concerned about the clean animals being with the unclean animals as well. Are the clean animals unclean because of their association with the unclean animals? I think of it like this apple. This is a perfectly good apple. And if it weren't for the fact that I'm wanting to be talking at the moment, I would very happily uh, dig into it. Um, I also need it for church this evening, so that's another good reason. Uh, however, uh, here's a photo of the Fogo bin in our kitchen, uh, where all of our food scraps and waste and all of that sort of stuff, among other things, there's some uh, pork in there, which we discovered was uh, significantly past its best before date, unfortunately, and had to throw out offcuts from cooking, fruit scraps, and other things like that. Uh, and there's also some animals which like that kind of thing as well. I, however, do not. Uh, and so if you were to put this lovely apple in my Fogo bin, I would no longer consider it good to eat. It would be unclean because of its association with the uncleanness around it. Thanks, we don't need to look at the delightful uh, food scraps anymore. Um, and so Peter has the same issue with these animals. He's concerned that even these clean animals, surrounded by unclean animals, they don't look very appetizing to him. He's concerned that the mere association with uncleanness will make them impure. But God corrects him. Have a look in verse 15. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. God says that what Peter thinks is impure, God has actually made it clean. These quote-unquote unclean animals are actually clean, and Peter needs to recognize that. Now, this brings up a side issue. Uh, it's a side issue because the main point of this story is not even about animals, as we're going to see later. But it is helpful for us to spend some time thinking about uh, what this means for food, and in general, how Christians relate to the Old Testament law. You see, if you trust in Jesus as your savior, then you know that you are legally right before God, and that Jesus has fulfilled the requirement of the Old Testament law. And that means that we don't have to 
obey the Old Testament law in our lives. Which means that, for Christians, all foods are clean for us. You can eat crab and lobster and pork, and if you want to, you can even eat lizards, uh, which the Jewish people weren't allowed to eat. It will not make you unclean, because in Jesus, you are clean. So that's our side point. Uh, But now we'll go back to our main point, because really, this is not just about animals. Why is this story in the middle of a story, sorry, why is this vision in the middle of a story about people, Romans and Jews? Well, it's because not only has God made animals clean, God has made all people clean. The Jews didn't like the Romans, or in fact, any other Gentiles. The Romans invading them and conquering them, forcing them to pay taxes, probably didn't help, but there was something more significant as well. The Jews considered the Romans unclean, and this was at least in part because they ate unclean food and didn't follow the Old Testament laws. But because of Jesus, no food is unclean and no person is unclean. This leads us to our third point, a meeting of equals. Cornelius has sent messages, they found Peter, Peter goes with them without hesitating, but what will happen now when this Jewish apostle and leader of the church meets this non-Jewish Roman centurion that he would normally consider unclean? Well, before we get to that, let me tell you about a story uh, that is uh, my experience of a meeting that was definitely not a meeting between equals. A few, um, a few months, years ago, um, I had the privilege of meeting the then still governor of New South Wales, uh, Sir, let me read this. His Excellency, the Honorable General Sir David Hurley, Order of Australia, Distinguished Service Cross. It's, uh, a lot of titles. You know that when you have twice as many letters outside your name as in your name that you're someone very impressive. Uh, and that's not to mention all of the honorary doctorates and other awards and recognitions that he's received. And he's now the Governor General of Australia. And then uh, there was me. Uh, I got to chat with him for a few minutes. Don't really remember heaps about the conversation. I do know that I definitely introduced myself to him. But I'm confident that the Governor General does not remember my name, which is particularly telling because we share the same first name. This was not a meeting of equals. Is this what it's going to be like for Peter and Cornelius? Is this a meeting of equals? Let's read from verse 25. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. Okay, so Cornelius and Peter, they've just met. Cornelius, the powerful Roman centurion, the host, the one who sent for Peter, he's the one who bows. But why is that? Why does Cornelius bow to Peter? This is another good question for us to think about. Why does Cornelius bow to Peter? Go for it for 30 seconds.
Okay, let's think about it uh, together. Let's see this as Cornelius does, because he doesn't consider himself the superior in this context, or even anywhere near equal to Peter. Remember, though, that Cornelius worships God, and Peter is a divinely appointed messenger sent by God to Cornelius. And Peter is a Jew. As a Gentile who worships God, Cornelius would have been very well aware that he was, uh, when it comes to worshipping God, somewhat on the outside at this time. He was not part of God's chosen people and didn't have the same privileged relationship with him. And so Cornelius doesn't see this as a meeting of equals. But Peter corrects Cornelius. Stand up, I'm only a man myself. Peter sees this as a meeting of equals. And we start to see why in verse 28, as Peter speaks to Cornelius and his household. Let's read verse 28. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Peter's understood the significance of his vision. The Gentiles, the Romans, are not unclean. God has made them clean. And so there isn't a barrier between them anymore. But let's keep reading what Peter says in verse 34 as well. Then Peter began to speak, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Peter's put together the different puzzle pieces that we've seen in the chapter of Cornelius' vision, his vision, and the gospel. And he realizes just how true it is that God doesn't show favoritism. That is, anyone from any nation, whether Jew or Gentile, can have peace with God through Jesus but how? How can it be that God could accept imperfect and sinful people? See, no matter how devout and religious and even generous Cornelius was, he was still certainly not perfect. His relationship with God was broken by sin, just like all of ours. On our own, both we and Cornelius can only expect God's judgment peace with God, that is radical. That is good news indeed. So how can Jesus enable sinful people like Cornelius, sinful people like you and me, to have peace with God? Well, Peter explains that he is a witness of two things, Jesus' life and Jesus' resurrection, and that makes Peter a perfect person to explain this to Cornelius and indeed to us as well. So let's uh, read uh, from Peter's speech, and we'll start at verse 42. He, that is Jesus, commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And do you notice there at the end, everyone, who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. 
Forgiveness of sins. That is how we can have peace with God. If we believe in Jesus, we can have peace with God because we have forgiveness of sins. And when Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead, we can stand confidently before him. But the news that God has appointed Jesus as judge and Lord of all is only good news if you believe in him, if you have that peace with God. If you don't trust in Jesus, then his judgment is only going to be one of condemnation. But if you turn to him in trust and acknowledge him as Lord of all, then you have a new relationship with God, a relationship of peace with him. And you don't have to fear his judgment. So turn to him and have this confidence that everyone who believes in him has forgiveness of sins in his name. This is true for us, just as it was true for Cornelius. And it is true for everyone, not just the Jews, but for everyone who believes. This reminds us that before God, Peter and Cornelius, you and I are all equal. We all have peace with God only through Jesus. One of the things that became clear as I was talking with the governor was that we were both evangelical Christians. And so, do you know what that means? Maybe it was a meeting of equals after all, because he and I are equals before God. And so are you if you put your trust in Jesus. You have the same status as I, as the Governor General of Australia, as Peter the Apostle. You have peace with God. We're now going to have a look at our fourth and final point for today and see that the Gentile Christians, they really are true believers. And this is very clear uh, as we see what happens after Peter finishes speaking to them, or rather, even before he finishes speaking to them. Have a look at verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered them, uh, he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. See, just like the Jews, Cornelius and his household heard the good news. Just like the Jews, they believe and have forgiveness of sins and peace with God. And just like Peter and the other Jews, they receive the Holy Spirit. God could not have made himself any clearer. He gives Peter and Cornelius visions. He pours out his Holy Spirit powerfully and visibly. These Gentiles are true believers. Now, landmarks and signposts are very important, uh, especially when you're driving around the countryside without a working GPS. This was a situation I was in a couple of years back when I was driving up to Moree to visit uh, my sister who lived there, uh, following some uh, written directions that she'd given me for uh, how to get there. 
Now, if you drive in the country much, you're very familiar with the process of uh, coming up to a small town. Uh, you're driving at 100, you slow down to 50 for the town, you go straight through the town, the road continues, go back to 100 and you continue on your way. A bit of variation in your country drive or an annoying delay depending on how you look at it. But this day I was driving through Bogabri and I was very familiar with this pattern. I slowed down, I went straight through the town, and Hans knows where this is going already. <laughs> I went straight through the town and went back to 100, uh, and everything was fine, until suddenly the road that I was driving on became a dirt road. And I wasn't expecting to drive on any dirt roads. And so I pulled over, at this point I'd driven about 20 kilometers out of town, uh, and had another look at the directions that I was working from. They said, in Bogabri, turn right at the petrol station and follow signs to Narrabri. And of course, I hadn't noticed that landmark of the petrol station. I'd just done what I normally do, driven straight through the town and continued on my way. And so as I came back to the town, I made, well, I was about to make a left turn at the petrol station. Then I realized that I probably didn't have enough petrol anymore to get to Mori, so I filled up at said petrol station and then continued on my way. See, you don't want to miss important signs and landmarks. You don't want to miss them when you're driving. You don't want to miss them when you're reading the Bible either. And so it's important for us to notice that we've reached a landmark here in the story of Acts. So far, with one exception, we've seen the gospel going out to the Jews. But here, the reach of the gospel is expanded because the Gentiles are included. And this is a key step in what was prophesied through Isaiah, Micah, and other prophets, that the Gentiles would be included in God's blessings along with his people. We read earlier in Isaiah 49 about how God's servant would bring back not only the descendants of Jacob, notably the Jews here, but he would also be a light to the Gentiles. And that is exactly what we see God accomplishing here through Jesus and clearly marked by the Holy Spirit. We've reached a landmark. We've got a clear signpost of the Holy Spirit being poured out, making it unmistakable. You can't just drive past this one. These Romans, these Gentiles, they are included as full and true believers. And so Peter says that they should be baptized, a sign that they repent, a sign that they are really part of the church. They may be Gentiles, they may not be part of God's chosen Old Testament people, but they are by no means fake or second-rate believers. Like Peter said, God shows no favoritism, and everyone who believes in Jesus and turns to him as the Lord of all receives forgiveness of sins as a true believer. This has implications for how we treat our Christian family. We treat everyone as true believers and equal members. We don't have to measure each other against various kinds of behaviors and experiences that we think genuine Christians ought to do or experience. There is no such thing as a second-class Christian. In the following chapters of Acts, the question repeatedly comes up whether the Gentiles are equal with the Jews. And the answer is 
Yes, the Gentiles are not second-rate Christians. No one is a second-rate Christian. And so let us walk in love toward our Christian brothers and sisters, not treating anyone as a second-class Christian, not measuring them against the standards of what we think a Christian should do or be. If you love, trust, and seek to obey Jesus, the Lord of all, that is a clear sign that God's Spirit is in you. You have forgiveness of sins, peace with God through Jesus, and have confidence in that fact. You are a genuine believer. Let's pray and thank God for this. Our Father God, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you that through him we can be forgiven and have peace with you. Please remind us of this. Give us great confidence in this for ourselves. And may we love our Christian brothers and sisters, not looking down on them as second class, but loving them as our equals in the faith. Amen.